Give Me Some Credit, episode number two, Mindfulness in Education, with Dr. Tish Jennings. some credit with Todd Scholl, and this is the second episode. And today I am delighted to be bringing onto the show someone who uh, is a hero of mine, someone who was, I was so excited when she said yes, that she would be willing to come on. It is uh, Dr. Tish Jennings, and, and Dr. Jennings is an associate professor of education in the Curry School of Education at the University of Virginia. Uh, she's a regular mindfulness pra- practitioner, has been practicing for over 40 years, And she spent most of her life exploring how mindfulness can enhance teaching and learning. After 22 years as a classroom teacher and teacher educator, Dr. Jennings received her doctorate in human development from the University of California, Davis, studied health psychology at the University of California, San Francisco. And now she is an internationally recognized leader in the field of social and emotional learning. Her current research focuses on uh, mindfulness-based approaches to improving the social and emotional classroom context and student learning. And for those of you who, who know me well, this is um, a topic that is absolutely near and dear to me and something that I think is critically important and, and that I'm heavily invested in. So with that, thank you, uh, Tish, for being on the show. Do you mind if I call you Tish? Oh, absolutely. It's fine. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Todd. Um, I want to start off um, because I always find it fascinating to, to ask people who are in really in, in this mindfulness movement how they got connected with mindfulness in the first place. How, would, how did you get connected to, to this practice? Uh, I, as a teenager, I suffered a lot of uh, trauma. And I discovered Zen meditation when I was 17. And for me, it was kind of a, a, it was like a, a lifesaver. You know, it was something I was grasping for to try to cope with the trauma I was dealing with. And this was back uh, a long time ago, um, before we had any understanding of, of what trauma does to kids and their development. And, um, and also, nobody around me realized that I needed any support. <laughs> so for me, I kind of had to figure out my own way. And I was really fortunate to have a friend who uh, turned me on to this Zen class in this um, community college I was going to, um, which I took. And that was kind of the beginning of, of a long history of experimenting with a lot of different practices and a lot of different approaches. Um, and then when I became a teacher, so when I started becoming, when I first started uh, teaching, I already had been practicing pretty regularly. And uh, I could tell just from my own personal experience that the more consistent I was in my practice, the better my teaching was. So that was my sort of experiment of one because I think I was more able to calm myself when things got a little frustrating. Yeah. I didn't take students' behavior as personally, <laughs> and I didn't feel as um, anxious about getting through my day as I, as I did when I didn't practice. So um, then I got involved in teacher education and spent some time observing teachers and realized that I wasn't alone, <laughs> that teachers in general, we all have a tendency to um, overreact and feel stress under any conditions in the classroom that are not going according to plan. Um, and that we also have a tendency to take 
student behavior personally. And then I, that's how I started thinking that mindfulness might be really helpful in teacher education and teacher preparation and professional development too. That's, that's interesting because uh, uh, it had a similar type of experience. It was, um, you know, I had, I had just been turned on to this practice because I, I was stressed out and I always tell people I, I'm the hypochondriac who does the worst thing. And that's, that's, I consult with Dr. Google and, um, <laughs> and I, you know, I went on and researched the symptoms of anxiety and, and, and stress and, um, kept coming across mindfulness and, um, and then started to practice and noticed that a lot of the same things that you did, which is not taking things personally, being able to sort of not, not be as, as overwhelmed with, with all of the, the pressures and stresses of facing that, that classroom day to day and all the, the, all the things that go along with it from, from duty um, to just uh, discipline issues to, you know, after school meetings and, you know, planning and, and then coaching and then doing all the extra things that we do. Um, so it's interesting to hear that you had a sort of similar pathway. Um, I was thinking about you over the summer with, uh, with the whole Charlottesville thing. And I was kind of yeah. interested in your take on what happened there since you are there at the university of Virginia. And, um, I was just interested in sort of what was, what was going through your mind during that time and the connections that you were making with what was happening there and your work. Wow. Yeah, it was, a uh, it was quite a shocking <laughs> experience. I didn't go near, near the event because I knew in advance that it was going to be rough and I know from my own trauma. So a little bit about my trauma history. I don't want to go into a lot of time because it could take a while to explain it. But one of the things that I realized most recently, um, it's one of the, the, the triggers that got me to thinking about and working on my trauma more recently. And that is um, my father died suddenly right after my parents separated when I was uh, just before I turned nine. And it was a real, it was a real traumatic situation. But Right after, right around that time, I had moved from Ann Arbor, Michigan to Tucson, Arizona, and I was going into fourth grade in a new school right after my dad had died, um, you know, actually he died in September of that school year. So um, in this new school, in this new town, in this new place, really different, and the principal announces that Kennedy has been shot. Now you all know how old I am. <laughs> anyway, anyway. <laughs> um, my whole class stood up and cheered. And as a kid who came from a family that liked Kennedy, and I was horrified because I felt incredibly sad that this president had been shot. I, at that point, we didn't know he was dead yet. Um, it was right after my father died, so I was still grieving for my dad. Now I'm grieving for the president, but I can't express my grief because my peers might attack me, you know? Wow. So, um, yeah, so that's why I don't go to things like what happened in Charlottesville, because in a in many ways, it, it, it triggers a lot of my past. I was able, what I, what, I, what I did was I shut down because that was the only safe thing to do in that situation, you know, yeah. associate. Um, and, uh, and I found out later why the kids in, in Tucson, it was back during the Goldwater era and Arizona was a Goldwater place and they didn't like Kennedy. And it was the talk about politics. But um, what it did make me think about that, that so the the Trump um, election brought up those feelings because of the rallies that they were having and and so the so the Charlottesville is in some ways parallels that because it's people with a lot of anger expressing that anger against other people that are different than them 
and yeah. it's uh, or have different views than they do. And and to me, that is is really scary. And it also made me think about um, how hard it must be for teachers today in this political realm. Because, you know, when that happened to me in Tucson, the teacher was pretty upset that the kids did this. And she told them not to, which was good. At least it gave me a feeling that maybe there's a, there's some safety here. But um, today you keep hearing about these kinds of things happening in schools where, um, you know, immigrant kids or <clears throat> don't speak English very well or whatever um, or kids of color um, are getting picked on uh, more than they used to be and bullied more than they used to be because there's a model out there or that there's it's become more acceptable um, for people to act this way. So, you know, um, the only thing I can do is keep remembering to keep my heart open and to remember to um, generate compassion best I can in this context because it's really... It is really hard. And, you know, one thing I have to say is right after that happened, I don't know if you saw it on the news, but there was like a secretly organized uh, candlelight vigil mm -hmm. um, where thousands of community members with candles walked through that path through the campus that the, that the torch people walked through. And it was, I don't know, 10 times the size of that group. And it was organized totally by word of mouth because they were worried that if they sent, did anything on social media, you know, they would attract the other group, the white supremacists. Yeah. So um, it, it was very uplifting to be in that crowd of people and singing and walking together all the way through that path. It, it gave me hope that perhaps what we're seeing is, um, well, now I'm going to get philosophical. I, That's good. I think, good. Okay. I think that our, natural inclination as human beings is to feel interconnected with one another uh, yeah. internationally. And I think globalism on one level is this movement that's sort of happening, whether we like it or not, you know, we're way more connected to one another everywhere in the world. And we're also recognizing that we're more interdependent all over the world. And I think for some people, that's a really scary thought that on one hand, you know, to be willing to open your heart to the whole world, that that's somehow scary. But I think the other part of it is that um, white supremacy is actually um, losing its power, you know, mm -hmm. because uh, some, some of us anyway are recognizing the history that uh, we've been blind to for, for a long time. And we're waking up and we're seeing um, the systemic racism in our society and, you know, all these other systemic isms like sexism, et cetera that um, there's this waking up process happening, which is also mm -hmm. causing a backlash. Um, so I, I try to keep myself um, open-minded and remember that this might just be a, you know, a, I don't know, a last gasp, I hope. Yes. <laughs> and that we can move towards this because I think that's where we have to head to survive yeah. today. I've, I've used that same exact term terminology with, with friends as I, I think this is a last gasp. And it's interesting that you... You know, when, when you see these things happen on TV um, and they're happening in another community, um, you know, there's almost you feel connected to it in a way. But I think like I'll just give you an example um, here in South Carolina. We have that massacre that happened with Dylan Roof shooting um, these innocent yeah, people at Emmanuel yeah. AME Church. And, uh, you know, he was a white supremacist. And um, and, you know, and even that, which was relatively close to where I live. Still, there's this like 
distance. I mean, it, it impacted me. But then I went to Charleston and um, I happened to be in Charleston and walked by the church. And there was this feeling when I got to the church and I saw all these signs and flowers and things that were around the church. There was all of a sudden I was just overwhelmed with just this sense of both grief and hope at the same time. It was like this grief about what had happened in the lives that were lost and also the hope that this church is still here and there are people that are still coming and there are and there are all these people that have surrounded this church with love and as a response and that there's more of us, there's more love in the world than there is hate. And so it was like this, this super emotional response that I didn't even expect to have at all because I felt, like you said, there's that when it happens somewhere else to other people, there's still that emotional distance that, I think a lot of us keep. And then when we go out there and we make that connection with other people, it's powerful. Yeah, I had that same experience when I went down to the corner where Heather Heyer was was killed with that car. Yeah. I had that they, they had the same thing. They had, you know, a memorial set up there for her. And when I went there, um, I just felt an overwhelming sense of grief. And that, like what you said, the same that the hope, because it was there were just piles of flowers everywhere and candles. Right. And yeah. It was, uh, it was, it, with that, with the, um, oh, the other thing in, in the, the candlelight vigil, people carried little signs of commemoration and they let, they put them down, um, in front of the statue of Jefferson and we're at the end of the walk and they left their candles. So I took photographs of, um, and I even took a little movie of all of that around there and it was really beautiful. I want to, um, shift, um, to, your your work with mindfulness in, in education and I've, I go around and I give uh, these presentations introduce introducing mindfulness concepts to to public educators and um, it seems to me from from my experiences that this is work that is just absolutely needed that we have um, teachers who are just crumbling under the pressures of of the stresses of teaching and there's you know a multitude of things that are stressing them out. And the, the research that I'm sure you're well aware of uh, shows that teacher stress is just growing. Can you talk, first of all, about teacher stress and what you, what you uh, know about teacher stress and, and uh, the impacts it's having on teachers now and how and, how and why mindfulness is, is such an important um, intervention in managing that stress? Yeah. So I think Teaching has always been somewhat stressful because there's a lot of demands on your attention and your emotions at, simultaneously. You, you have to pay attention to a lot of things, and you also have to regulate emotions that are going up and down all the time. And you're also constrained in, in a way. Everybody in that room is is a virtual captive. You can't just walk out of your classroom, and, and your kids can't do that either. And so you, you feel like you're confined in a way, uh, and nobody has any privacy. Uh, so that when you are managing emotions, you have to do it in front of everybody. So I think that was there to begin with. And some people are better at handling that kind of stress than others. But when you add to that um, high stakes testing, um, the greater num- the no- larger number of kids coming to school that have needs that teachers need to address, um, you know, kids that have more kids with behavioral issues, more kids that aren't getting what they need at home. Um, that when you add that to an already existing stressful profession and you don't provide the training that you might need in order to learn how to uh, cope with these stressors, um, 
you know, it, it, it kind of puts you in between a, a rock and a hard place. And I think teachers have been in this place for almost a couple of decades now. And what you're seeing is that um, there's a growing shortage of teachers because why would you want to be a teacher under these conditions? Um, you, you know, you can't even um, enjoy the parts of teaching that make it worthwhile because you are so stressed out that you're actually creating problems on top of the problems you already have. Because that's one of the other things that, that I've seen in, in all my years of observing teachers is when we get stressed out, we cause more problems in our classroom. We engage in power struggles with our students unintentionally. Yes. <laughs> um, we trigger stress in our students unintentionally by just by stress contagion. Um, you know, and so uh, it's like a it's like a spiral, a negative spiral. You know, once the the teachers stress out, the kids stress out, and everything sort of falls falls apart in a way. So um, I think now from the work that I've been doing, we we know, um, and I can go over my research with you, that, that mindfulness and combined with emotion skills training and compassion practices can give teachers the social emotional skills that they need to cope with this environment and maintain their resilience and continue to enjoy teaching and avoid those pitfalls like unintentionally triggering power struggles with students. Um, and so I'm feeling hopeful uh, because it isn't a very expensive way to support teachers. We just need to give teachers enough time to have the training and enough time to practice so that they can build their capacity. Um, would you like me to go over the findings? Oh, please do. Yes. Okay. So we did a large randomized control trial in New York City with, um, oh gosh, I've been saying this so often that usually it rolls off the top of my head, 224 teachers in 36 elementary schools uh, in the Bronx and upper Manhattan, uh, which is an area of New York that's pretty tough. And the schools are, are not so well resourced and the teachers are, are having, you know, experience a lot of stress. Uh, and what we, we randomly assigned teachers in these schools to receive this program called Care for Teachers or be in a waitlist control group. And so the, wait, the, uh, the teachers who got care, what, what they got was four full days of training plus a booster. And we gave them this training over the course of the fall, over several days. And between the days of training, we um, coached them uh, over the phone to find out how things were going, to encourage their practice, to help them see um, how what they were doing in their practice related to their experience in the classrooms. Um, and then um, we did the booster in February of that school year. Um, before and after those teachers got the training, we collected data from all the teachers um, and what the data, and before and after that. Uh, so we collected self-report data from the teachers um, we collected observational data of the classroom. So we had observers go into the classroom and rate the classrooms using a measure called the class um, that looks at different, different dimensions, dimensions. Of, the, of the classroom. And then um, we, uh, we also had teachers report on their students. Uh, so, and we had over 5,000 students in our sample. And these were all elementary schools. Um, so what we found was that the teachers who experienced care were significantly less emotionally distressed or psychologically distressed. They, were, they experienced less time urgency, so they felt less stress around time. They were more mindful in their self-reports, and they were also more emotionally regulated. They were using uh, emotion regulation skills that are more adaptive than the other group. These were all significant findings. 
Then um, the classrooms were rated as more emotionally supportive. So the teachers were more were showing more sensitivity to their students, and the classrooms were more emotionally positive overall. Um, another finding in that observational data was that the students were more on task or more productive. Uh, when we look at the, the teachers' report on the students, the student outcomes, the students were more engaged in the group that um, had care, which makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, you've got a classroom that is calmer and more positive and more, teachers are more sensitive, the kids are more engaged, and, um, and, this, uh, and the, I mean, they're more productive and the students are more engaged. Um, what they, some interesting findings, um, if you looked at just the subsample of kids who were rated low on social skills at the beginning of the um, study at baseline, they improved in uh, motivation and reading, which I thought was really interesting. They're the only ones that we saw change in anything other than engagement. Uh, so that, that's interesting. But that makes sense, too, because one of the reasons we chose that sample to look at was we wanted a, a sample of a lot of high-risk kids. And um, you can imagine with a kid who's doing fine in school uh, or they're getting everything they need at home, whether their teacher is more mindful or not isn't going to make a big difference in their school performance. But if you've got a kid who really needs emotional support, especially if they've got social skill problems, they're probably more likely to show impacts of, of training like this. So that, I wasn't that surprised by that finding. Uh, one finding that was a little bit surprising, though, was that when you looked at just the teachers um, who were low, extremely low on mindfulness at baseline and improved quite a bit on mindfulness, their students improved in reading as well. So I thought that was, that was an interesting finding. So um, that somehow or another, it was the teacher's mindfulness that seemed to, to moderate whether or not the student was better in reading or not, which is an interesting finding. So um, these, at least the results about the teacher in the classroom were published in a paper in 2017 uh, in the Journal of Educational Psychology. And those other findings were working on other papers to report. Um, but hopefully they'll be out soon. It, it seems to me that it's it's clear that that teachers are stressed out from the, the data I've looked at, that, that, that teachers across the country are stressed out. And it seems clear to me that mindfulness is an effective intervention with stress. And what, what's, what I struggle to understand is the disconnect between, first of all, there's a lot of policymakers that don't even seem to know or understand that teachers are stressed. And then second of all, I don't, I'm confused as to why mindfulness wouldn't be just integrated everywhere. It, would, it seems like such an obvious intervention because of the, the, it's, it's universal. Everybody can do it. It's effective. It's scientifically validated and, uh, and, it, and, it, and secular. What, what do you think is the cause of that disconnect and the cause of it being uh, adopted uh, more, more in, a, in a more prevalent way? Uh, well... I think I'm going to get a little political here. Yeah, please do. <laughs> um, I think uh, education, and especially teachers, um, have been the scapegoats uh, for a really long time um, among our politicians. And that, you know, teachers have been vilified and said, well, the only reason why our students aren't doing well is because of the teachers. When we know very, very well that um, it's what the kids are bringing to school that's impacting their learning way more than the teachers. Uh, and that it's really hard for a teacher to overcome those kinds of issues. You know, if a child's coming to school with exposure to trauma or, you know, whatever they're coming to school with. 
But um, so, and that's number one. So um, because of this um, negative view of teachers in education, um, I think it, it's almost like you hear in the news that it's almost like the politicians want to take away more and more from teachers, or they just want to give them crumbs, you know, because they've already vilified teachers in a way. And so it's like, well, why should we give the teachers anymore? They're not doing very well anyway. Right. So that really upsets me when I hear that. It really, really upsets me. And I've been working very hard to help uh, people, you know, help change that view of teachers, because in my mind, teachers are heroes, are incredible heroes. And Every day, those of us who teach come into the workspace work with the strong intention and strong passion to help kids. Um, and it becomes really discouraging when, you, when that's your intention and that's what you come to work for and you can't because of the system or because you don't have the resources or because of whatever. Um, and you lose, you know, you burn out. You lose, you, you lose the passion for what you, um, what you really got into the profession for. Um, so, I mean, I'm hopeful that things are starting to change. There's, there's a, um, teacher stress act that is before Congress right now. I mean, I don't have a, a lot of, um, uh, confidence that it will get on the docket considering how jammed up everything is in Congress right now, but there is a, a bipartisan bill that's floating in the system, um, to, provide more funds for research um, focused on teacher stress, which would be great because that, we don't really even, I mean, we've been speculating what is causing teacher stress based on our experience, but there's never been a comprehensive longitudinal study of teacher development and teacher stress. We really just don't know um, what teachers, you know, so we, in order to prepare teachers for the kind of stress they deal with, that would be really helpful to have much clearer idea of exactly like what, at what point do teachers burn out in that process of becoming a teacher? We all know that the first few years of teaching is really hard. Um, how can we make that easier? How can we help them transition into that role and develop those skills as they go? You know, these are all questions we, we really need to answer. I, I think it, the more, um, we can show that there's a that there's a cost benefit to this. Um, the better off we'll be, and I, and I wish we had some data on attrition and things like that. And but that is another reason why we need a longitudinal study to look at what impacts do these kinds of interventions have long term in terms of you know people staying in the profession, uh, people's use of medical um, uh, support. You know how much money are they saving on? I don't know. Doctors visits those districts. I don't know. These are all really important questions. One it seems to be one one pushback would be um, the idea that some public schools um, uh, see this as some type of religion that's being pushed on on the schools. Can you can you speak to that issue and why? Like if someone's listening to this podcast and they're an administrator, superintendent, principal, whatever, and they're they're actually interested in in mindfulness, but they're worried about the the public pushback uh, that you know might might occur. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, one thing that I think is very helpful about all the mindfulness research that has come into the field in the last twenty years is that it's pretty clear that these practices, completely secular practices, 
have very positive effects. And, you know, most of the research has been conducted on these secular practices. So um, it, I don't, uh, I think the, the way that they're introduced and the way they're presented is important because I do also know that there are some people who come into schools without understanding the school culture, understanding what secular means, and they start <laughs> using terminology or they use some kind of Tibetan bell or something that they don't really need to use. I mean, there's no reason to use that terminology. Uh, uh, for example, chakras or that kind of terminology. Right. There's no reason to use that terminology. It doesn't, it doesn't impact the, the effectiveness of the, um, the practice. So um, I think people just need to be really skillful and not throw those in without thinking because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're completely extraneous. They don't, they don't, they're not important. And in the places I've seen where there has been pushback, it's because people have not been thoughtful about the kinds of words they're using, the terminology they're using. They've sort of blended yeah. in some non-secular terminology that wasn't helpful, and it triggered feelings among some parents that it was religious. But in reality, nothing they were really doing was religious. It was just words they were using. Um, I published a commentary um, in Mindfulness, uh, mag- uh, not Mindfulness Magazine, Mindfulness Journal a few years ago about this and, and sort of put forward a best practice for secularity, which I, I can share with you if you want to share with your listeners. Yeah, that would be great. That'd be great. Um, another, another pushback um, that I've seen recently has been more recent, um, and it's kind of frustrated me a little bit, is... This notion that mindfulness is really just a way to get workers to be more compliant, that it's it's really just a secret way that when districts do Im- implement it or a company does implement it, they're just trying to get you to quiet down and complain less. <laughs> um, and that, that to me just sort of uh, reveals an, a misunderstanding to me of what mindfulness practice is. Because I always tell people when I, teachers, when I go to present that if, if you think my goal is to get you to be less of an advocate for your profession, I'm, it's actually the opposite. I, I think mindfulness actually helps us to see our, the working conditions more clearly and to articulate a, a position with less, less emotionally and more uh, thoughtfully. Um, can you talk about what, what your stance is on that as you've seen these articles come out? Oh, I totally love the way you just expressed that. That's completely what I completely agree with you about that. Um, I do think, and, and this also relates to use of mindfulness with students in schools, I think when people don't understand mindfulness and they don't really um, embody it and they haven't practiced it regularly, there's a risk that they might use mindfulness as a control mechanism, which is what I understand you're sort of describing. And you could see that as if teachers in classrooms start to use mindfulness with students without understanding it. Um, it might, it could become a, let's, it's time to practice, be quiet, sit down, you know, instead of those of us who, who are doing it in schools with, with a mindful orientation, know that, that it's an invitation and, mm-hmm. you know, it's not something we're forcing on kids. And it's, the intention isn't that everybody's going to be quiet and sitting still. There might be yeah. somebody laying on the floor and rolling around and mm-hmm. that's okay. You know, that's part of the practice. Um, and the same goes for adults. Um, it, it isn't, I mean, some employers might think, ah, this is a way to make my employees more compliant, but they're going to be in for a big, a rude awakening <laughs> because I, I don't think that's going to be the case at all. I yeah. do think that 
Um, the, other, the other issue around this one, too, and I don't know if, if you have had this experience, but as teachers, and I'm speaking for myself, too, um, we have a tendency sometimes to be kind of martyrs in a way. Yes. Like, you know, sort of like, oh, poor me, I'm working so hard and nobody appreciates me. Yeah, okay, that's that might be true, but this attitude doesn't help. <laughs> you know? Right. And I think the more mindful we are, the, the more we can say, hey, wait a minute, I'm just being a martyr. I'm just complaining. I'm not doing anything. I'm not expressing myself in a way that anybody can hear what I have to say. I'm just complaining. And, you know, nobody wants to hear complaining. But mm-hmm. if I can articulate why my job is hard and why my job is important. I mean, that to me, I don't understand why our society does not recognize how vital teachers are to our society and our mm-hmm. culture and our children. Um, that needs to be articulated. That needs to be expressed and needs need to be expressed clearly um, in ways that are not going to provoke, you know, pushback. You no, know, just teachers are whining, you know. Yeah, I know you're passionate about uh, teachers taking care of themselves. And um, one metaphor, and this has probably been used before, but one metaphor that I used recently with teachers is when you get on an airplane, if there's an issue with the oxygen leaving, you've got to put your mask on first and then you put it on the child next to you. Um, because if you choke to death, it does no good, <laughs> you know, for the child because the child doesn't get their oxygen. Um, but I, I think that there's a message given to teachers that they always have to put students first, student needs first, and that anytime they speak up for their own needs, that it's, that it, that it's equated, is conflated with complaining. It's conflated with being selfish and not putting their students first. And, I th- and, and the other thing that I think does a lot of damage to teachers is the notion that teaching is only a calling. Now, it is clearly a calling for a lot of people, but when you say it's just a calling, it kind of almost gives you license to take advantage of the person in terms of their pay and their working conditions because they're going to they're gonna be like the giving tree, that Shell Service Silverstein giving tree. They're just going to give everything, like every moment of their, their day, their waking day, they're giving to these classes because they love and care for about the kids. And there's this notion that if you're not willing to do that and you take some moments to take care of yourself, that you're not putting the students first. And I think what's happened is that type of culture has been fed into year after year and, and more real estate, is, teachers giving away more real estate of their lives to the point where this is creating them a huge burnout effect and, and a lot of the stress that we're seeing in these, like the AFT study and, and, and some other studies that have come out. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I totally agree. Um, well, I, as you were talking, I was just thinking back to when I, I got my master's in education, started teaching in 1980. And I remember back then, I started out as a preschool teacher, and I remember um, people kind of teasing me, you're getting your master's degree in preschool education? Like, like I was, you know, isn't that just babysitting? Right. <laughs> and when I got out into the workforce, I realized that most of my peers, and especially in early childhood, almost exclusively, were women. And that most of them, unlike me, they were older than me, and most of them um, had the, the, their, the money they were making as a teacher was extra pocket money for them because they were already stay-at-home moms or they'd already gotten used to having their family taken care of financially by their husbands. This is back in 1980. Um, and over the course of my career, I've seen that completely change. And I'm not saying that public school, a lot of public school teachers, you could say the same thing about, that they were working you know, part-time, they were working six hours a day, which seemed like part-time back then. And you know, they didn't have to make 
a lot of money because they had another job. And that's the way society looked at teachers. This is a female-dominated job mm-hmm. where women are making extra money and they get to go home to their kids afterwards. And, you know, so, so, <laughs> so the whole profession has been, their, sexism has driven this attitude towards teachers from the very, from, well, I, I have to say, from the time public education became mandatory, when women became teachers because they didn't have enough headmasters around to teach all the kids, they had to find women who could do this job and they had to fit, somehow fit it into the, the, the demands of the female lifestyle at that time. Mm-hmm. So it's been a sex, uh, sexism has, has driven this attitude and, and the attitude that it's a calling, the attitude that you should be giving and giving and giving and not taking care of yourself. This is all sexism. Yes. I, I, you're, you're echoing the thoughts that I, the same thoughts that I've had, I've had, which is these are vestiges of a time when it was viewed as this profession just for women and that they're done at three o'clock and they get the weekends and summers off. And it's, it's this kind of cushy thing that, you know, will allow women to do. And, um, and that, that, that stereotype persists today, despite the fact that it's, it's just not reality. And, uh, and it's very frustrating. It's very, very frustrating to see what I see is, is teachers being taken advantage of because most of them, most teachers I know do have a good heart. And when you tell them that they're not putting students first, their, their, their default reaction is, is not to think, not to fight back, but to say, you know, well, maybe I do need to give more. Maybe, maybe there's something else I could be doing. Because they, they, they all do, most teachers do have that passion and care for their students. Um, and I just keep going back to that image of the giving tree and, uh, and thinking about teachers who give an entire career to doing this. Um, I admire it, but it's just so sad that we don't, allow, we don't allow teachers to feel like they have time for themselves to take care of themselves and to have a life a significant life outside of, of school without feeling guilty about it. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's a critical issue. And, you know, I struggle with this my whole entire life because it's a tendency I have to not take care of myself, you know, because I grew up with that mentality. Um, for me, paying attention to myself and caring for myself is a constant, uh, some, it's a constant thing that I have to pay attention to because it doesn't come naturally to me. And one thing I noticed um, as I was learning how to reflect more on myself with my mindfulness was that there was a little voice in my head that was a really good signal that I wasn't taking care of myself. And it was when I started feeling like nobody appreciated me. Mm-hmm. When in, my, in my head, I'm saying people don't appreciate me. They don't appreciate me. He doesn't appreciate me. She doesn't appreciate me, whatever. When that got into my head, I was like, oops, who's not appreciating who, you know? Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to hear that and get that because when that's going on in my mind, it's really easy for me to believe that, you know, and that's where that martyr complex comes in. Oh, yeah, nobody appreciates, you know? But that is really um, me not appreciating me. And, uh, and that's something that I struggle with still, um, (laughs) to this day. It's, it's, I think it's something that, um, is, you know, it's something that as a culture we're dealing with too, because I hear it all the time from other teachers and especially other women too, who aren't even teachers. It's a, you know, it's, I think I keep reading that this next wave or movement or change in our society is going to be driven by women 
And I, I'm starting to feel that's probably true because, you know, I mean, we are a majority of the population and we have been oppressed for a really long yeah. time. And we haven't even realized how oppressed we've been until recently. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, you know, I think it's going to be, uh, I'm hoping that on the heels of that kind of a movement, professions that have been female dominated will have to change. They, I, I hope, I mean, I really do. Yeah, I think, and I think that gets into um, also the issue of uh, uh, equity and pay, because I think this, this vision of the profession um, has prevented us from paying teachers, compensating teachers adequately and, and sufficiently for, the, for, the, for what they do. And I think it also gets into how they're off, how we've moved into this paradigm where teachers are, we, you know, administrators feel like they have to prescribe exactly what the teacher needs to do. Here are the, here's the textbooks you need to do. Here are the problems that you need to do. Here is the script for you for what to do. Like we, instead of painting by, uh, you know, out of the heart and creatively, it's like we, you're going to paint by numbers. You're going to paint, here's the prescription of how you're going to teach. And I think that gets into this sort of, this whole endocentric uh, issue that, that, that causes problems for the teaching profession, that somehow men have to control the profession, that we have to ensure that these women are doing things the right way, even though it's, you know, there's plenty of men who do it. But I think that's just like a, it's like a holdover from this time period where, where the, the sexism has and continues to, to shade people's legislators and other policymakers' perception of the profession. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and I think the, the more prescriptive teaching becomes, like you described, the less joy there is in teaching. If, if you right. can't even determine what, you are, what textbook you're going to use or what curriculum you want to use or even what page you're supposed to be on on what right. day, um, you, you, know, might as, you might as well put it all online and let them all right. do it automatically online. Yeah, you know? right. It's how cheaper. You, right, and I, I just don't know how you expect to recruit creative, intelligent autonomous people into a profession where you, you squash all those things. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. You're not going to be able to do that. And like you said, you might as well just have put everything online. If you're going to, if everything's going to be prescriptive, just put it all online. And I hope that we don't do that. And that, and that gets us into the next question, which is your, your work in social emotional development, the importance of embedding that into the school day. Talk, talk um, to the listeners about your work in the social emotional realm and why that's how that's often been overlooked due to our just narrow minded view of education as we got to improve test scores. Why it's so important that social emotional uh, uh, needs are met and how that actually would it improve test scores. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I'm going to sort of t- put a little twist on this because I'm working on a book, another second book right now. Um, that's intended to support teachers and schools um, to employ a trauma-sensitive approach to learning. And as I've done the background research for this book, it keeps coming back to me that creating safe, supportive, warm, um, inviting environments is good for all <laughs> um, but it's particularly good for kids who are living in adverse conditions because they're already hyper vigilant and um, and sensitive to threat. And if they come into a school that's not completely safe and warm and inviting, and that they're not being taught skills for how to get along and and 
and the systems in the schools aren't real clear and clearly defined, um, they, they can become very reactive or they can do what I do, did, which is shut down. You know, those are the two kind of typical reactions you see among kids who are exposed to trauma and adversity. You know, they either are really dysregulated and they act out a lot, which cause a lot of difficulties in classrooms or, and learning, it's hard to learn when you're like that, or they internalize and shut down and that also causes learning problems. It's very hard to learn when you're dissociated. So um, I think these creating, so one of the keys to social emotional learning is creating spaces, educational spaces where the relationships can um, flourish and kids can feel like they're part of a community and they can develop skills to help create that environment. So, um, you know, the, the five uh, competencies that we often talk about in social emotional learning are self-awareness, self-regulation, social skills, uh, relation, I'm sorry, relationship skills, social awareness, and decision-making. Uh, and, you know, they all rely on one another. They're obviously interdependent. But what I see is that when you create an environment where the adults in the community have these skills at a really high level, um, because you need them to be a teacher, and they're modeling these kinds of uh, positive behaviors, and they've created these spaces where the norms are that we treat each other with respect, that we regulate our emotions, that we um, manage our relationships in ways that are respectful. Uh, we deal with conflict in ways that are peaceful and respectful. Then kids learn to um, function better. They learn these skills better. Um, one of the problems I see today is that there's some people are trying to teach this curriculum, but they're not modeling the behaviors themselves, and you're giving them <laughs> a mixed message. So um, I think that this approach, the social-emotional learning, needs to be a whole-school approach. And I think it needs to include mindfulness and compassion practices because um, those are the underlying skills of self-awareness and self-regulation that we need in order to function this way. One of the things that I love about your work is that you take things out of theory and into practice. And um, I know you've been instrumental in the Compassionate Schools Project, which has been a real-life uh, sort of laboratory for this work. Can you talk about the Compassionate School Projects and Project and what um, we've learned from that so far? Sure. Um, the Compassionate Schools Project is a, a very ambitious uh, study that's being conducted in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, with eventually we're going to have close to 50 schools that we've randomly randomly assigned to get this um, new curriculum or not. And the Compassionate Schools Project curriculum is a reinvention of health and PE curriculum. Uh, what we've done is we've integrated social-emotional learning, mindful awareness practices, compassion practices, and uh, healthy eating skills, uh, along with movement activities that come from yoga, uh, to help kids develop those skills in their social, in their um, health and PE class. So the the premise behind the whole project is that what we what our students need to learn today are lifelong learning skills to how to be a healthy person, and that we can't outsource our our, our health and wellness anymore. We have to embody it, and that we need to teach our kids how to embody it, and that this is a much more important thing for them to learn than how to play dodgeball. In PE. <laughs> um, and so we've been um, using this curriculum, or the teachers have been using this curriculum in these schools 
uh, and we've been collecting data on, on kids in these schools. So um, ultimately, it's a five-year project where we will be able to see not only the short but also the long-term effects of this curriculum on the kids' outcomes. And so we're excited about this. So eventually, the curriculum is going to be uh, freely available online to anybody who wants to use it when we're done. Where will they, where will they be able to find that? Um, if they just Google Compassionate Schools Project, there's a website, and it will yeah. be up there eventually. I always show the little the video that was created with the students that oh, are, yeah. are doing I, was, I, I usually show that in my presentation if I have time because it's uh, it's really powerful piece. Um, I, I, before you before I let you go, I do want if someone's still listening, um, obviously they have interest in this, and I think uh, it would be important for them to ha- to know a little. They may want to know a little bit more. And one of the great resources that I send people to is your book, Mindfulness for Educators. Can you give uh, our listeners a synopsis of the book and, and let them know where they can find that book sure. if they want to learn more? A quick correction. It's Mindfulness for Teachers. Oh, sorry, Mindfulness for Teachers. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. My bad. Okay. Um, yeah, Mindfulness for Teachers, it's, um, uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's not very expensive. Um, and uh, I, I've been getting really great um, response from this book. I, I've been so happy that people have found it helpful. Um, what Mindfulness for Teachers does is it, it lays out uh, why teaching is stressful, explains what stress is, explains why, it's, why teaching is stressful, and how to cultivate mindfulness and emotion skills training in order to promote the social and emotional competencies that you need in order to manage that stress uh, and how it can improve your classroom management and how to apply it to classroom management specifically. Um, one of the things I think about the Care for Teachers program and my book is that mindfulness is specifically... Well, I give people specific skills to think about how these practices apply to their context, their specific stressors. Because one thing we've learned is that just reducing stress generally is not necessarily going to improve um, teacher performance. It it has to be contextualized to those stressors. And so um, my book and also the Care for Teachers program really helps teachers do that, to look inside and figure out what is it that's pushing my buttons and how can I apply mindfulness to those specific buttons um, and overcoming them. I talk a lot about how we can overcome these automatically conditioned responses we have or, that are called scripts that trigger us and get us going in the classroom uh, when we don't even realize that's happening and how we can calm ourselves and, keep, and avoid those scripts from interfering with our relationships with our students and our teaching. I just want to say that say it again. Mindfulness for teachers, uh, and and you can you can find that on Amazon, folks. If you're still if you're listening, and um, Tish, I just want to thank you. I, I, you've given me an hour of your time, and I know it's valuable. I know you have a lot going on. I just want to let you know that I you know it's it's always interesting to follow people on Facebook and to see what they post. And there are certain people that just stand out. They're like you're like I can't wait to see what they're going to post next, what resources, what information they're going to post. And it's always interesting. I always find um, what you post fascinating. It's wonderful to be connected with you that way. And it's and even better to have a face-to-face uh, virtual conversation with you. And I appreciate your time. Oh, just to let your listeners know, I also have a Mindfulness for Teachers Facebook page where I post a lot of that. So if anybody wants to follow me there, they can. And they can just do a search for Mindfulness for Teachers. Mindfulness for Teachers on Facebook. And yeah, and just sign up and, and you'll get my feed there. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again, Tish. And best of luck with your work. And um, hopefully we'll have another conversation at some point down the road. Well, thanks for inviting me, Todd. Right, you're welcome.